This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. A bit later in the hour, a conversation with U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy about what's been dubbed the silent epidemic loneliness. And later we're talking ticks and how you can help scientists study them. But first, we are approaching the peak of the hurricane season when it feels like there's a new storm every week and we blow through the alphabet naming them. Well, this week, Hurricane Idalia made landfall in Florida as a Category 3 storm. It left hundreds of thousands of people without power, some without homes. So what do we know about this hurricane? And what can we expect from the rest of the hurricane season? Joining me to discuss this story and other science news of the week is Rachel Feltman, editor-at-large at Popular Science based in New York. Welcome back, Rachel. Thanks for having me, Ira. Nice to have you. Okay, you know... Speaking of the hurricane, it seems, thankfully, it was not as bad as predicted, right? Yeah, that's true, though it's all relative. I mean, this is a situation where, first of all, the forecasting was extremely accurate. So uh, kudos to NOAA. Uh, Basically, people were able to plan and there were really good uh, evacuation protocols, Um, again, because just the track of this hurricane was really well forecasted. And then there are a few things that really came down to chance. It happened to hit at low tide. So um, where there was about nine feet of storm surge in uh, where it made landfall in Florida could have had an additional three feet if it had hit at high tide. Mm. Um, And obviously, there's just no predicting that. So it's really good that we were prepared for uh, what could have been 12 feet of storm surge. The storm also weakened from a cat four to a cat three. And of course, while these days storm surge tends to be more of a concern than the wind speed itself, obviously, um, a a storm with lower wind speeds is always going to be uh, less dangerous, all other things being equal. Right. And then it also happened to hit uh, the like least populated area of Florida. So while, of course, there have been some really serious uh, property damage, and it sounds like uh, a couple of fatalities, things could have been much, much worse if just a few things about the storm uh, that we have no control over had turned out differently. So yeah. Great reminder to always be prepared for uh, the worst of those forecasts. Speaking about being prepared, what can we expect? What are they expecting for the rest of the hurricane season? Yeah, well, what's interesting about that, Ira, is that we are entering um, an El Nino climate pattern, which usually means uh, much less hurricane activity in the Atlantic Basin. But between the fact that those atmospheric conditions that tend to um, kill off hurricanes, basically, with with wind shear, uh, those are being slow to develop. And meanwhile, we have this record-breaking warm water that is fuel for hurricanes. So, you know, forecasters are saying that we, we really are not out of the woods yet in terms of this hurricane season, you know, it officially goes uh, until November, and we probably will have at least a few more named hurricanes in that time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now let's move on to something. Well, how do I describe this? It's a little (laughs) weird, and it's a bit scary. (laughs) You know where I'm going with this, right? Well, take over. Go ahead. (laughs) So neurosurgeons in Australia put out a case report about pulling a live three-inch long worm out of the brain of a patient uh, in 2022. Um, They say she's doing very well and being a real champ about being the first person in the world to ever have this particular parasite in her brain. So she's, she's a stronger woman than I am. How did it get there? 
So the best guess is that this parasite at first doctors were like, what is this roundworm? Like, we don't recognize it. They couldn't find anything, you know, in the medical literature about a roundworm that looked like this being in the human body, let alone the human brain. And uh, they were able to identify it as a known parasite that infects pythons. Mm. And this patient um, who's a, a woman in her 60s in Australia, she uh, forages for local grasses to to use in, in cooking, um, is my understanding. And so their best guess is that um, as she was foraging in her local area where, where pythons that carry this parasite are prevalent, that through their feces got into contact with her food or eating utensils. And so this is just a, a case of zoonotic crossover or spillover where this parasite that is not supposed to want to live in humans decided, sure, why not? Um, Luckily, it was found and it sounds like the patient is doing well. Great reminder, though, that uh, you could always become the first human carrier of something. So be careful. Out be there. diligent. <laughs> exactly. I know the, the, the news is full of health stories. And, and there's another one about air pollution and lifespan. That's also not so good. Yeah. So the University of Chicago's Energy Policy Institute put out um, their big report on air quality. And unfortunately, they say that lowered air quality is uh, and air pollution is responsible for reducing average life expectancy by 2.3 years worldwide. So it goes without saying that that's skewed towards some countries. Uh, There are four countries in South Asia, India, Bangladesh, Nepal, and Pakistan that account for more than half of the total years of life lost globally due to pollution. But it's still something that is a global problem. And um, air pollution is not good for you, even if uh, you're you're in a country with better air quality than the ones I listed. And I think especially with uh, uh, the issues we've had this past summer, this is something that a lot of people are uh, are going to care about. Yeah, yeah. Is there any good news from this report? There is some good news. So China, which was long, you know, like a, a poster child for having smog-filled skies, according to this report, they have improved their air quality by more than 40% since 2013, which is when the government undertook like a multi-billion dollar uh, war against pollution. So basically, you know, they put in clean air policies tougher than ever before. They put in air monitoring stations. They shut down coal mines and coal plants. And that has paid off. It looks like residents have um, gained a couple of years of lifespan back. Of, of course, they don't have great air quality. There's a lot of room for improvement. But it's great proof that, you know, when a government has the the money and the desire to really combat air pollution, you can make a big difference. Yeah, that really is good news. If you do, if you want to do it, you can do it. Yep. Speaking of, of smoking and uh, in a different <laughs> terminology, there's a new study that suggests some troubling information about marijuana. Yeah, so this new study looked at a few thousand adults and it found that people who uh, had reported using marijuana in the last 30 days were found to have 27% higher blood lead levels than people who didn't use either marijuana or tobacco. That part's important because smoking tobacco is still known to be the like biggest source of lead for people in, in the U.S., but it looks like marijuana is uh, maybe catching up, which we, we don't want to hear. There were also high levels of cadmium, but lead is really the substance that's like there's no safe level of exposure to that, so we, we really don't want to hear that. Where does it come from? Yeah, what's interesting is that we already know that plants are really good at taking up heavy metals from the soil. And basically any product that involves sort of 
you know, distilling the plant or condensing it, you're going to have that high quantity of heavy metals and, you know, you're, you're going to have to work to take that out. It's actually a known issue with vegan protein powders as huh. well. So it's not at all exclusive to marijuana. Well, I would think that is because it becomes more commercialized. There'll be a better standard of health. For the plants, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, definitely it's something that, again, in the vegan protein industry, as people became more aware of it, there, there's been more standardization. And, you know, what the researchers of this study said is that you really want to make sure that, first of all, you're actually buying your products from a legal dispensary. And, you know, states do have guidelines in place about how much heavy metal is allowed in, in a product. So you want to, like, look up what your state's policies are make sure that they're um, good, and then make sure that the products you're using uh, follow them. And uh, there are a couple other things to consider. The researchers did say that, you know, this study didn't differentiate between like gummies and smoking. But generally speaking, inhaling lead is always worse. So that's something to keep in mind. And they also pointed out there are no federal testing rules for um, hemp derived products that have CBD as opposed to THC. So even if you don't think of yourself as being a marijuana user, if you uh, tend to like vape CBD oil, you should definitely be paying attention to studies like these. Good stuff. And, and now for something totally different, I mean, <laughs> what mummies smell like. This is not something you wake up in the morning and start wondering about. I mean, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, apparently these researchers do. They decided to find out what a 3,500-year-old Egyptian noblewoman named Sinetne smelled like. And um, they, they say she smelled like uh, beeswax, plant oil, and tree resin, and maybe a little bit of a smoky note as well. So pretty good. Wow. Can, can this tell us anything about the, the mummification process? Yeah, so this is one of the more complex mummification balms that they've found. But what they're more excited about is where all this stuff came from, because the tree resins seem to come from, they think, larch trees or pistachio trees or a few other trees that aren't naturally found in Egypt. That Some of them show up in the northern Mediterranean and some come from like Southeast Asian forests. So they think this might be an indication that there was a way farther reaching trade at, at earlier dates than they previously thought. That's cool. I, I want to end this, this uh, news roundup on some good news. And that's about a <laughs> turtle, a turtle yes. far from home. Tell us about that. Yeah, Tally the turtle. She's a, a Kemp's Ridley sea turtle. So they're the smallest and therefore cutest and also most endangered species of sea turtles in the world. And they're found in the Gulf of Mexico, but they can get caught on the Gulf Stream. And Tally showed up 4,000 miles away from home on a beach in Wales in 2021. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. wow. Um, and usually that's bad news. The cold water will just kill baby sea turtles that get, get caught and pulled out that far. But a dog walker on the beach saw her, uh, thought she was dead, but still like called to report her to the authorities, which is exactly what you should do. And sure enough, when some local you know marine researchers got there, they found she was alive. She was in very rough shape but they spent the next few months nursing her back to health. And um, now she's being flown home. It's a It was a big undertaking, a lot of people involved. Wow. But uh, once the Houston Zoo gives her the all clear, they'll be releasing her um, near Galveston, Texas. Well, we wish safe travels to Tally the turtle. And uh, yes. to you too, Rachel. Have a good and safe holiday weekend. <laughs> 
Thank you. You too, Ira. Rachel Feldman, editor at large at Popular Science based in New York. And we wish all of our listeners a safe and happy holiday.